from Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and clean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Then she rose to glean. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up, went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her, daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, 
he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, it is, um, again, our desire knowing that you are a generous God who speaks generously to us, uh, that you would again help us to receive all that you have to say to us, that you would give us open ears and open hearts and open minds, that you would reshape us and make us more and more people who trust you and live according to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this week, as I was considering this passage, and actually even also as I was thinking about Micah's profession of faith that he was about to have, um, I thought of a scene from Napoleon Dynamite. If you're not familiar with that great classic movie from 15 years ago, one of the all-time apexes of Hollywood, um, the scene that I'm thinking of is, uh, so Napoleon's best friend Pedro is running for student body president. And Pedro isn't very popular, and to be honest, Pedro isn't very charismatic. The one thing that Pedro has is a lot of siblings. And so Napoleon decides he knows how to make that work. There's a certain moment in, in the movie where there's this kid who's getting picked on by the bully. The kid is like pushing the kid down and down and down, wanting the lunch money, eventually gets the lunch money. And right after the bully leaves, Napoleon kind of walks up to the kid and, and asks, how's your neck? And the kid says, it stings. And then Napoleon pauses, Pedro offers you his protection. <laughs> and so then later on in that day, the kid is grabbing his bike, and here comes the bully, and you know the bully's about to take the bike, and then suddenly this old car kind of rolls on up, and these two really mean-looking guys just kind of look at the bully and just... And the kid and that bully, it runs away because this kid has experienced Pedro's protection, and all is right. So this is going to seem maybe like a stretch, but I want to say that in some ways, what, what happened with Micah this morning was like that. At, at, at baptism, God truly offers his protection to us. He says, I will be your God. I will be your protector. I will be your provider. And when Micah or when any of us make our profession of faith, whether publicly or even privately, when we say, I entrust myself to you, we are putting ourselves in God's hands. We are trusting ourselves to his protection. But the question is, what does that actually look like? We, I mean, we know what Pedro's protection looks like. It's these two guys. But when we're saying that God protects you, what does that even mean? This is one of those times where we have these, these great truths, but then we have our life, and we're not sure how to draw the line. Like, what does it mean that God is protecting you when you're a parent of young children, and one of them starts throwing up, and you realize it's a bug that's about to go through the whole family? What does God's protection look like then? Or what does God's protection look like if you have a really stressful situation in work? Or what does God's protection look like if, if the rain is coming down and the basement is flooding? Because that's the, that's the stuff that we live in every day, right? What does it mean? 
I mean, we know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that because God is our protector, life is one nonstop, suffering-free party of joy. Because anyone who's experienced following Christ for any period of time knows that's not what it looks like. And that's certainly not what it looks like in the story that we're considering when we're looking at Ruth. I mean, think of what we saw last week. In God's country, under God's protection, we saw famine. And Naomi, one of God's people, lost her husband and her children. So what does it mean if God is our protector if it doesn't mean everything is just easy? I think in many ways that's what, that's what the book of Ruth is about. That's, that's really what our chapter starts considering. What does it look like for God to be our protector? And so our, our passage tells us the answer, but it doesn't really tell us because like any good narrative, it doesn't tell us, it shows us. And here's what I think it shows. It says, yes, life is not going to be easy, but if God is your protector, that means you will never be alone again. That God will always be with you. And that in the end means everything. So our, our passage begins um, with, with, with the two people that we left off with last week, with Ruth and Naomi. They're now at home in Bethlehem, presumably in the home of Naomi that she left 10 years ago. And, and, and really, as it begins, we see a, a contrast in their personalities. Verse 2 says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. I mean, do you sense the contrast? Ruth is like, go get him. We've got a problem. I've got to figure out a solution. I'm going to wake up early and I'm going to do something. And what does Naomi do? Okay, fine. I mean, Naomi's depressed, right? She's hopeless. She doesn't even give Ruth, who doesn't know the area at all, any guidance. She's just like, all right, whatever. There's a passivity and an activity. And yet, there is something that both Ruth and Naomi have in common. They both have, in their own way, entrusted themselves to God's care. It might not have looked like this, but when Naomi decides that she's going back to the promised land, she is saying, in the weakest but truest way, I, I'm going to try to trust God with my situation. And Ruth, if you remember, when she says, I am not going anywhere but where you're going, Naomi, she says, your God will be my God. Both of these people have, in their own way, entrusted themselves to God's protection. So what will that look like for them? So, so Ruth heads out, and, and so what is it, when she's saying, I'm going to go do the, what is, she, what is her plan? Well, in that day, the law that God gave his people had kind of this provision that was kind of like a, a, a work-for-welfare plan. Whenever barley, whenever wheat was harvested, people would kind of grab a bunch of it, they would cut it, they would tie it together, and as they moved through the fields, inevitably there'd be pieces they dropped, there'd be little shoots that they missed, and God's command is don't go back after them. Let the fatherless let the widows come behind you. Don't go at the very edges where it's small as well. Let them take all of that. It, it is a way that kind of gives the poor dignity, right? They work, and they're able to provide for themselves through this gleaning process. So that's what Ruth is seeking to do. But it's a bit more complicated for Ruth than that because Ruth is a foreigner. Have you ever been um, in a, kind of walking into a group where everyone seems to know each other except you. Like maybe it's when you are first coming into um, a new church, 
Or maybe you transferred from one school to another in the middle of the year and you walk in and you realize you're the only one who doesn't know everyone. It can be an intimidating process. That's, that's Ruth. She is a foreigner. She is not from around there. And when she is walking into a situation, she doesn't know how do I do this. She doesn't know who I should talk to. There's a lot of uncertainty. But it's even harder than that because, well, she is... Um, probably an attractive single woman in her 20s. She doesn't have anyone who will stand up for her if she is taken advantage of. And she is going to be walking in fields with mostly women. Even at the very end, you notice Naomi talked about the danger of being assaulted. This is a real danger for Ruth in this moment as she is walking into a place that she knows nothing about, seeking provision. And I can only imagine how, how lonely this must have felt for her to just kind of just walk aimlessly, see a field, just kind of walk in, ask, is it okay if I glean, and just kind of start doing it? I mean, have you ever felt like that, that, that sense of utter aloneness, that you're by yourself in a situation and it feels just very vulnerable? In moments like that, sometimes it's hard to think even in terms of, of God being there. It, it just feels very alone, and that's how she feels. But what happens next is, is so significant, and, and we're given a couple of different ways of evaluating the event that takes place next. We're, we're told after she goes out that in verse, uh, in verse 3, it says, and she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And did you notice what it says next? And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. What a lucky break. I mean, what are the odds? There's like many fields and many portions of the field. And she just so happened to come to the one section that belonged to a distant relative. Now, now, there's irony, I think, here, right? It's intentionally making you think about what's really going on. But in some ways, it's also underlining the way that we think of things. Don't we often, when we see events, we just say, wow, what? It was so lucky this week that I, when I had a really hard day, some really good news. What a wonderful coincidence. Or I was driving the other day, and man, I got so lucky. This car stopped like two inches away from hitting me. And we think in terms of just these, these events without order, and we're just glad that somehow they happened. And that's, that's what this is saying. It just so happened. But there's another way of evaluating this, another way that's suggested by what happens next. Verse 4, the leading man enters the scene. It's Boaz. Verse 1 tells us that he is a worthy man, which, which means he's honorable, a man of integrity, a man who has a good reputation throughout the community. Everyone thinks highly of Boaz. And from other clues throughout this book, we're led to understand that Boaz is a good deal older than Ruth. Ruth is probably in her 20s. Boaz is probably in, her, in his 40s. Um, if we were thinking of Ruth the movie, to kind of get a picture in our head, maybe, maybe Ruth would be Emma Watson, you know, Beauty and the Beast, Harry Potter, Emma Watson. And, and I think Boaz would be Bradley Cooper, right? Like, so that's, that's the difference we're talking about in age. And, and so as, as, as this Bradley Cooper figure, as Boaz enters the scene, he, he has this greeting. Now, normally in that day, the greeting would just be shalom, shalom, you know, peace to you, peace to you. But you notice they have their own special kind of form of greeting, of liturgy. 
says, the Lord be with you to all of his workers. And they respond, the Lord bless you. There is this desire, this connection between each other where their deepest desire is for the Lord to be with them. Maybe you've heard this before, like sometimes churches will say, the Lord be with you and also with you, or, and, and maybe you wonder, what does that even mean? Because isn't, isn't God everywhere? I mean, if we're saying, may God be with you, is that just kind of like saying, may water be wet? I mean, it's already true. Why are we wishing it? But, but when we're talking about God being with someone, we're not really talking about space, about the presence of, like, the location of God. We're, we're talking about attention. We're talking about commitment. You know, if, if you're in a hard situation and your friend says, I am with you in this all the way, we, we know what that means. Saying, hey, I'm committed to seeing this through with you. I've got your back. I, I, you know, if it's going to be hard, you know that you can count on me no matter what. And that's, and that's what this idea of God being with you. It's God having his face turned towards you. It's, it's God being committed for your good. That's the prayer that's being expressed. But it also expresses a, a way of viewing the world. When, when this is the desire that these people are talking about, they are saying that this is an all not just a bunch of chaotic events that's one that is happening after the other. We're in a world where God is in charge and our greatest desire is for God to be with us and, and overseeing the details. And, and what those two in juxtaposition, verse three and verse four do, is it, it, it raises the question. Is this really just a, it just so happened that Ruth found this perfect spot? Or is this an example of actually God being with Ruth, of God blessing Ruth? So, so Boaz has entered the scene. They've had their kind of, you know, kind of their own version of their, their high fives to each other with their liturgy. And, and then he kind of like looks over the field and he kind of does this double take, right? It's like, who is that? I mean, it says, whose woman is this? And what he's talking about is, I know every family in Bethlehem. Because just so you know, Bethlehem is not a large, I said, you know, everyone knows each other. Bethlehem is a town of probably about a couple hundred. I know every family in Bethlehem and I've never met her before. And so the foreman kind of tells the story. He says, well, you know, she came here at the, 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 break of, uh, the break of dawn, and she asked if she could glean, and I'm like, sure, fine. And so she's been there ever since, just working. And what is striking to me is as Boaz hears that, what he does next, the amount of attention he gives to Ruth. Think of this, Boaz is a powerful man, he's a busy man, there's many things he could be doing, and Ruth is the opposite of that. Ruth has no standing, she is a foreigner. There's not much likelihood that Boaz would even have thought of her in a romantic way because there's so much of an age gap. There is no incentive Boaz has to care for her. And even if he just felt the need to be altruistic, he could just basically tell to the foreman, hey, could you just make sure she's okay? But that's, that's not what happens. Do you notice the, the focus that he gives towards her? He comes over to her and he thinks about everything that she might need. He first makes sure he extends hospitality. He says, stay with us. You know, have you ever had a situation where someone's being kind to you and, and they've done you a favor, but you don't know if you should ever ask again or if that's like a one-time deal? Well, Boaz is making it clear. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere else. And he even calls her daughter. You're a family. You are welcome here, Ruth. And then he, he seems to have had some awkward conversations with a number of, young, uh, a number of his workers because he says, I have told every single one not to touch you, not to take advantage of you, so you're safe here. 
And if you're ever thirsty, you can always come in and have the water that we have here for us. And then later on at lunchtime, he says, please come eat. I want to make sure that you have enough food. I mean, this, this is extraordinary. And certainly that's how, how Ro- Ruth sees it. Do you see her response? She, she is so overwhelmed by the attention that's given to her that she, she falls down on her face. And it says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Why would you notice me like this, she asks. What a lucky break that she would have a situation like this. Of course, it's not luck. I mean, it's obvious this is God. This is an act of God, right? Last week, if you were here with us, I said that the way that Ruth is written, we're supposed to understand in chapter one that as, as Ruth is showing this faithfulness to God, I mean, faithfulness to Naomi, that it's not just about Ruth in that moment, that Naomi, if she could only see what, what, what God is doing is showing his faithfulness through Ruth. That is, Ruth is saying, I will go with you wherever you go. It's actually God saying, that's the commitment I have towards you. And I want to say that in the same way in chapter 2, this, this attention that Boaz is showing is not just about Boaz. We're meant to realize that this is how God is towards the people that he loves. And we see this in a couple of places. I mean, it's a subtle narrative. Again, it's showing us, not telling us. But we see this both later on when Naomi speaks, but we also see it here in Boaz's response. So when Ruth says, why would you, why would you notice me in this way? Do you notice what Boaz says? First, he, he speaks about how I've heard about the way that you, you took care of your mother-in-law. Um, but then also, do you notice what he says next? And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. It's interesting. Commentators get really excited about this part because it is an explicit, explicit allusion to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, you might remember, is where God calls Abraham, and we're told that Abraham leaves his, his mother and his father, his homeland, his family, and he goes where God takes him. And Boaz says, that's what you've just done, that you left all that you know to follow God. And, and do you notice the phrase that he uses at the very end? It speaks about how the, the Lord repay you for what you have done, a full reward be given for you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is asking, why would you do this for me? And Boaz says, you have taken refuge in the wings of God. You have left everything you had to trust God as he has called you, and this is what happens when you do. In other words, he's saying, yes, I've been faithful, but I want you to understand, Ruth, that what you are experiencing is not just something for me. This is the love of God. This is the attention of God. It's, it's an act of God that Ruth is experiencing in this moment. That, that phrase, act of God, is kind of a, a, a strange one, isn't it, right? We, um, our insurance companies will sometimes talk about an act of God, and it seems like whenever they're talking about an act of God, they're talking about something that's really bad and really big, right? So it's, it's a hurricane or an earthquake. Those are acts of God. It's, it's not like they say a mosquito bite or someone finding their keys are acts of God. That's not how we think of. 
But I want you just to, to pause and recognize that actually we are seeing here in this moment an act of God that looks very different. I mean, if you pull back, this is actually an incredibly important moment for the entire world. It might not seem like it, but just bear with me for a moment. Think about this. This relationship that's forming, I know this is a spoiler, but I'm sorry, they'll eventually get married, and they're going to have a kid named Obed, and Obed is going to have a son named Jesse, and Jesse is going to have a son named David who would change the course of history in Israel. But it doesn't just stop there because David has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son and so on until there's a daughter named Mary who has a child named Jesus, who changes the course of everything. This is part of God's major work of redemption happening right here, and, and yet there's no fireworks, there's, there's no angels, there's no waters being parted. What, what is the act of God that's happening in this moment? It is, it is a 25-year-old woman in, in the morning while the sun is just rising, feeling really uncertain and just deciding to walk towards this field. And it's not like suddenly she feels God pulling her. It's not like she sees an angel. She just makes a decision. This act of God is Boaz hearing the town gossip, telling him a day or two before, did you hear about this person that came and learning about it? And it's not like suddenly there was the filling of the Spirit and everyone heard. It was just, it was just this mundane moment where Boaz learns about it, and yet it is an act of God where he is with Ruth, and he is guiding these details so that she would experience his attention and his care and his love. And through this, experiencing God's attention and care and love and experiencing the reality that God is with her. So, so we come to the end of our passage um, and, and she, we're told that Ruth, at the end of the day, has gotten so much, because Boaz gives, I don't know if you notice all these other things, make sure you drop a few things so she has a little extra, and tell her she can go here. I mean, he's being incredibly generous, so it says that she comes back with an ephah, which of course means nothing to us. But so it's 20 pounds of barley after she, this is a lot of food. We're talking a couple of weeks of food. She can barely carry it as she's walking home. And so when she comes home, well, there's Naomi. Remember, it's not just Ruth that has entrusted herself to God. It's, it's Naomi as well, but what is Naomi doing? She's still maybe just sitting, looking out the window, passive, depressed. And you can just imagine this moment where Ruth is kind of like stumbling and just drops the bag right in front of Naomi, and Naomi for the first time wakes up. And, and she asks the obvious question, where did you go? And so then Ruth tells the story, because of course Ruth is excited, and Ruth talks about how she was just wandering, didn't know where to go, went to this field, the foreman said she could go and do stuff, and then she met the owner, and the owner's name was Boaz. And in that moment, everything changes for Naomi. I mean, have you ever had something like this where, where you um, have just heard something that, that that seems to change everything. It's like this earthquake that flattens things. It breaks through the defenses. Maybe, maybe it's a criticism that suddenly like levels you, or maybe it's a word of praise that changes the way you view yourself. Or, or maybe it's, will you marry me? Or I'm pregnant. Or maybe it's even something that you come across in a Bible study or sermon that just, that pierces to the core of who you are. That's what happens in this moment for Naomi. 
For Naomi, it's, it's like her soul was just covered in the darkest of clouds. And in this moment, these clouds break apart and she experiences the sunshine for the first time in what feels like forever because she understands what this means. She understands this was not just chance. This was God. Which means God hasn't abandoned her. That God is with her and is paying attention to her. Do you notice what she says? She says, may he be blessed by the Lord. The Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you remember last week I talked about this word chesed that's oftentimes translated kindness. It means this stubborn, rock-hard commitment of love. That's the word here. Naomi is saying, God is faithful to me. God is committed to me. God hasn't abandoned me. God is with me. This passage is meant to help us, not just Ruth and Naomi, but us, to answer the question, what does it mean when God declares his protection? And it means that God is with you. And it means that God's attention is upon you. It means that God will always be good even if it doesn't feel like this in the moment. That's the hard part, right? Even if it doesn't feel like it, when I'm walking alone on a path and I don't know where to go, when there's famine, when there are people who die, it doesn't feel like it. But God gives us his promise. And, and for a reason even more certain than even Ruth or Naomi had, we can be confident in this. Because, because they didn't see the cross, but we do. You know, Paul in Romans says, you know, like it's basically just trying to bring us to reality. God did not spare his own son for us. That's just a remarkable statement. God did not spare the one he loves more than anyone else for us. And then he says, if that is the case, how will he not give us everything else as well? If God is that committed to you, that he gave his son for you, how will he not give everything else that you need as well? So what does this mean that God will protect us? We are going to experience some confusing times. That's what Ruth prepares us for, right? There's going to be complicated moments. We're going to, in this week, maybe, have some things that really don't seem to feel like God's protection. There'll be times that we don't feel like God is near, but God says, no matter what, I will be with you. And my kindness may be strange, it may be uncomfortable, but it will be faithful. It, it means what we confessed earlier on in the service. When we say that God watches over you and me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Brothers and sisters, not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father. And he is working all things for your salvation. I invite you to please join with me in prayer. Um, spend some time responding to God in silence. And then I will lead us in a time of, of prayer and confession in a moment. Would you please pray with me?
Father, we, uh, like Naomi, can oftentimes forget your faithfulness. Lord, it's oftentimes difficult for us to trust that you are with us, even in just kind of the, the mundane, small things where it's hard for us to see. Father, please forgive us for not placing our faith in you. Please forgive us for hearts that do not rest in you and trust in you in those moments that are hard to understand you. Lord, we pray that you would deepen our confidence, deepen our awareness of your involvement in our lives, that more and more we would be those who trust in you in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we are made. He remembers that we are dust. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. God has remembered us in our sinfulness and brokenness. And through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God.